Uh, I had three topics that I was trying to pick between for tonight. One of them is how things appear versus how things are. The second is trying to answer the question of where does God dwell when Jesus starts his teaching on how to pray. He says, here's how you should pray. Our And every piece of that first line is just dense, packed with rich implications. Our, not mine. Father, who art in heaven. And the art in heaven part has kind of always landed as a, like, why you got to specify that? What, what, how is that a helpful phrase? What does that mean? So there's like a, just a, a whole reflection on that, which I may do on Sunday instead of now. And then... The third theme that I was thinking maybe we could talk about is a, a phrase that I made up called God's Godness. And since I made it up, you don't know what I mean yet. God's Godness. Um, it, it seems to me that modern, modern Christianity seems inclined to be more interested in how to do stuff mm -hmm. than who is God yep. in, in, in God's eternal self. So big thoughts of God are, are rare. And the, and the Christians who seem to have the biggest thoughts of God are often in churches whose vision of God, to me looks less like Jesus and more like the God of philosophy. So, um, so what I would like is for those of us here who I think have a loving vision of God to not lose a transcendent vision of an all-powerful, eternal, all-knowing, all-present, all-holy, inconceivable God of such grandeur that to just capture even the tiniest glimpse of who this God is would utterly transform everything we think. Because we, when we grow up in church, so I'm starting, this is the teaching. We grow up in church and we have the word God and the word God becomes this, this cartoon in which we place certainties. Things we're sure of. But the very nature of the subject of God destroys the idea of certainty by the fact that God is incomprehensibly beyond a human brain knowing anything except for the little bits that are within our capacity. Did that make any sense? So we say the word God... And it's like, a, it's a, the word God is, a, is an English word that's just a placeholder. That's a sign that points to reality so great that words can't ever do remote justice to. The, last night I, I, had, uh, I unfollowed someone who has been impactful in my life. Or maybe it was two nights ago. Unfollowed them on Facebook. And that's a different story. Stayed friends. But it seems like they're going down a track. They're going down a theological track 
where my vision of God is so much better than all the rest of the church is that if you don't agree with me, you have a terrible evil God and therefore you're guilty of, in some ways, sins against people for not having my beautiful vision of God. And, and here's how I think about it. His vision of God might be a little more beautiful than some of the rest of us, but compared to the real God, the distance between his little more beautiful vision of God and the real God, is the gap is so wide as to make the difference between his little bit better theology than the rest of us that he's pooping on irrelevant. Am I making sense? It's like, I really want to grow in humility is, is, is one of the little applications of this, this thing. Like, because like, I, I, I can have an upgrade in my theology and then become a Pharisee about it towards people who, who actually have a better relationship with God with their worst theology. It's possible to have a great trust in a good father with, with a theology that I would look at as bad and dangerous and scary and ugly and bear really good fruit and have lots of peace and sleep well and live well and go home to heaven with the well done with what I would consider to be a, 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 an inferior vision of what the cross accomplished and who God the Father is and how predestination works and how the Bible is put, up, put together. Theology is, is a human agenda, a human effort. It's a, it's a necessary and faith. We've got to say words about God. But, but there's something about God's godness being transcendent and infinite, and we have finite minds trying to comprehend an infinite cre creature, no, wrong word, being who's uncaused and utterly joyful. He is utterly joyful. He's so joyful that he loves everyone. Everything God does, he does with a glint of joy. It's incomprehensible. Okay, so God's godness. Isaiah chapter 6 is a little different, I think, because we would, we would almost start, instead of start with what kind of category is God in, as, in terms of beings, we would kind of start with this God is love, and then we would take our human understanding of what love is, and we would fill in the blank for God with a very human understanding of what love is, and we would kind of start there. Instead of starting with this mind-bogglingly massive reality of the I am, the uncaused, utterly complete, eternal being from which everything in the entire cosmos emanated effortlessly. Effortlessly. He didn't sweat at creation. And he's not sweating now. He's never had... Yeah, so, okay. Uh, let's just, I'm going to read this, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, that's Jesus, by the way, Isaiah saw Jesus, according to the New Testament. This is, this is Jesus in the Old Testament. In the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. That's fascinating right there. His, the, the, the longer the robe, the greater the majesty. And his robe, so long, the majesty, or, the, the temple couldn't contain the majesty. I remember hearing an African guy say, our, when I get into the presence of our, our king, I, I want to honor him so much, I can't bow low enough. I wish I could dig a hole in the ground to bow lower. 
and that's a human talking about his human king, how much more do you think Isaiah, in the presence of this king of great majesty, felt that? Okay, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. Oh, they have extra wings just so they can express the sacredness of God by covering their face and feet. That's cool. With two they flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's armies. First off, holy. Unlike, holy here means transcendent and completely unique and unlike anything in existence. This is the third definition of holy, right? Three definitions of holy. One, one means morally pure. One means devoted for sacred use, religious use. And the third means transcendent. The third use is only used of God and no one else. You alone are holy. In your what? In your what I'm calling Godness. This is the third sense. No one's like you. There's no other being in the entire universe that is anything of the kind of creature. Again, there it is. Everything else is a creature. There's no other being that is even of the type of being you are. To be near you is to go, what? What? Whoa. And they're never getting tired of it. This is, this is a glimpse into this ongoing eternal thing. They're never getting tired of it. You and I, we taste the smallest of pleasures, which to us are the biggest of pleasures of life. And eventually, most of them diminish in our capacity to be awed and thrilled and pleasured by them. And the, these seraphs never grow tired. They're, they are never, they're, okay, they are constant, they are perpetually moved. I was going to say they're never not moved. I don't like double negatives. I'm never not going to. They are constantly moved. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. And then this is, the, this is the revelation. The whole earth is filled with your glory. So it's, it's a moment where the curtain of the invisible is drawn back. And Isaiah sees a glimpse of what is the spiritual foundation of all material reality. He's catching a glimpse into the truth. Because you know material reality is less real than spiritual reality, right? The scientific worldview says the opposite. It says, Christians, that's fine. If it makes people good citizens, if it makes them feel a little less afraid to die, that's fine. Karl Marx, it's the opiate of the people. No problem. But it's not true. What's true is what's material. What's real is what's material. Well, listen, you cut me open. You're never going to find what's most real about me. You can't find the me inside of me, no matter what you do with probing around in my body, not even in my brain. You will never find me. Because I am more than matter. I am primarily a non-material being who is capable of interacting with and embodying a material essence. As little kids, the transference is much more honest. As we grow up, we learn how to hide our spirit behind our matter. And we learn how to pretend. But I am primarily spirit. And God, God, the scripture says that what is visible came from what is 
invisible. So Isaiah has the veil or the illusion about reality pulled back and he sees into the, the, the plane or realm that is always with us called the realm of the spirit. He sees into heaven, which is not a, a million miles away on a planet somewhere outside our solar system. It's right here in a different dimension that this one is dependent upon for everything. You know this. Christ upholds all things moment by moment. In him, all things hold together. By his word of power, by, by Christ's creative word, all things, material, molecular, atomic, hold together second by second. The material is eternally dependent. Even if, I remember in the, Stephen Hawking had the, the theory of the oscillating universe theory that the universe is in a, a series of big bangs and then big freezes and then big contractions and another big bang and another big freeze and another contraction. And, and I thought, even if that were true, it would still be eternally dependent on the God who is spirit. I'm not saying it is true. I'm saying even if it were true, even if matter were eternal, it would still be eternally dependent on the greater realm of mind, of spirit, of heart, of intention, of personhood. Okay, so Isaiah gets the veil pulled back and this vision of God and the holy, holy, holy and the revelation is heaven and earth are full of your glory. So now, of course, his response, what's his response? He's undone, he's, uh, he's aware of, he's instantly aware of how pure and majestic and holy God is, and oh my, things in me need to change, <laughs> which is very true. Things in me need to change, but it's not a condemnation he's experiencing, because instantly his guilt is taken away by a divine decree. Boom, coal from the fire, cleanses your lips, and he's from a people of unclean lips. And then instead of, uh, get, out of my, get out of my sight, you dirty, rotten scoundrel, he's, he's commissioned to speak, which is the very area of his brokenness. There's so many lessons in Isaiah 6. In the very area of his weakness and sin and brokenness, he becomes, that's the part of him that becomes the agent of the divine. That's just, oh, come on now. That's just, what are you talking about? Okay, the pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. And so there's this vision, like to, to be in the presence of God in his godness. This is Christ in glory, not Christ tucked in, 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 in humbled, uh, incognito, one of us form. This is Christ in his glory. There were glimpses of it in the incarnation at the Mount of Transfiguration. His face and his clothes were changed, and I like the detail, and his clothes became whiter than any launderer could make them. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you're, you're struggling for language again. And, uh, and a voice came around them from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. <laughs> simple, so simple. But God in his godness, Another one would be Isaiah, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees the bush that burns and he comes aside and there's a whole theme there of um, what, what was it about, about that bush on fire that drew Moses' attention? It wasn't just that it was on fire, it was that it never 
burned up. And I have this theory that we're called to be burning bushes, that we're called to be people whose lives are falling apart and they never do, who are going through hard things and it just doesn't kill us, who have been mistreated and we're not bitter, who are aging, yet we're getting more hopeful as we get closer to heaven. Like we're called to be burning bushes that burn and are not consumed that cause people to come aside and say, what the heck? What is going on here? And the revelation that Moses gets is God tells him his name and his name is what? Exodus 3, what is it? 17? Who, 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 do, I, who do I tell him sent me? Because of course Moses is like, I fled Egypt on purpose and you want me to go back? Who am I going to say? They're not going to listen to me. Who am I? What are you talking about? Wrong dude. It's not about that. Tell him, I am that I am. Well, and, and so then theologians have taken that and said, that's deeper than we first thought. It's not, it's not the, I, I told you so. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not what I say because I said so to my kids. Is I am the uncaused being in whom I exist eternally and I am in no way dependent on any other. I'm not helped, or, or the, way, uh, the way Stephen, before he's martyred, says it. We should not think that the God who made the heavens and the earth dwells in temples made by hands or is served by humans as though he needs anything. For endless ages past, God hasn't been helped along or been in need. He is in himself, independent, eternal, all joyful, all holy, all righteous, all good, all happy. And he doesn't just love you, he delights in you. He doesn't love you the way that we're called to love each other and go, dang it, and we grit our teeth and we pray for grace. He loves you freely because he can't help himself because he's absolutely overjoyed at everything he has made. Overjoyed at what he has made. Uh, and we could read Psalm 29, verses 3 through 11, which I, you remembered. It's the one where it's like, the voice of the Lord shatters the cedars and the voice of the Lord makes the tornadoes go, ah, that one. You know the psalm I'm talking about? We could read that about God and his godness, God and his majesty. And I think I would love if we regained a transcendent vision of a God who can't be trifled with and so that... It would be nice if we didn't have such, because I think the paintings from the old school medieval era, they, they picture God as a man with a beard sitting in a big chair that's made with, that's like overlaid with gold next to a smaller man, which is Jesus, surrounded by weird looking creatures that we call angels. And I'm like, it's actually not helpful. And, and that he's floating over top the world like levitating in the sky because that's where heaven is. It's in the sky. And I think that vision of God has really made a cartoon. There, uh, can, you, can you hear what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, he's not man-sized on a chair behind Mars. Our Father who art in heaven. Where's heaven? Somewhere out there. It's like picking up our phone. God, if you can hear me. Or this prayer that we've, that we've heard in movies and maybe in people's lives. God, if you're out there, help. 
wow, he's, he's out there. Where? Again, somewhere beyond Mars. Why? Because he's in this realm called heaven. And one day I hope to go there. Where's that? It's, it's out there beyond the sky. Is it behind the moon? Is it behind Mars? How far do we have to go before we get there? Brothers and sisters, it's right here. It's right here. It's right here. The voice that came from heaven, it, it came from the air around them. That's the heaven that was being referred to. The, all the air that's touching all the matter in this room is the first heaven. And that's the place where the voice of Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That's the place the voice of the Father said, this is my son. That's the place that the Father spoke to Moses face to face on the mountain. Hi, here's my commands. Like, he's not far. Heaven's not out there. It's right here. And this is dependent on, on heaven. Okay, but that's Sunday's talk, maybe. We'll see. Adam Clark wrote this about God. God is the eternal, independent, self-existent being, the being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without any foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple. Ah, when theologians say simple, it means utterly pure in terms of, uh, to be a divided heart is to, ah, oh, no, ah, oh. he's not divided. The most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect, eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself, because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. Now, maybe you would write that differently. Maybe you'd pick a couple of words and say it a little differently. But can we recapture a vision of God and his godness? I think, like, we wake up in the morning and the needs of the day press so hard on us that we're just trying to make it through. And these kind of big thoughts of the God with whom we have to do and before whom we stand completely naked right now and all that's in me is, un is bared totally transparent before this God. This is the God we have to do with, that I have to do with. And I'm never out of his presence. I am never out of his presence. Not only am I never far from his presence, I'm never out of his presence. Heaven and earth are filled with his glory. And if we have eyes of faith, we'll see it that way and we'll begin to see it that way. And this is the God who says, why do you worry about your life? What you will eat? What you will drink? What you will wear? This is the God that says, ask me. Ask me anything. Just ask in my name and I'll do it. I want you to bear much fruit. Like, if we, I just want us to catch a bigger vision of God so that in the, in the practicalities of our daily life, we know who we're with. Is it possible 
that the universe is a safe place for us. That we don't even have to be afraid of death. Is that possible? I read the entire Westminster Catechism yesterday. Oh, man, I'm snotting out my face. Ah, sorry that you had to see that. Is this a coffee filter? It's a freaking, it's an unhelpful mask. I guess I could have put that on. I literally thought it was a coffee filter. I was like, bro, that is a good idea. We do need some coffee makers up at the front. No. I read the entire Westminster Catechism the other day because that's, a, that's one of the group, the strong um, English Baptists, Calvinists, that's one of the groups I've judged as having an evil vision of God. And part of my repentance is to go back and learn from them. This is how they answer the question, question seven. A catechism is a series of questions where the, per, where the person is asked, Series of questions, and then it's our job to memorize those answers so that biblical truth gets in us so deep. Like um, the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but I am bought with a price and I belong spirit and soul to my Lord and Savior Jesus. See, that stuff can get in you. It's like, okay. This is how they answer the question, question seven. What is God? Holy smokes, how would, would, if my kids ask me the question, who is God, I have a good answer. But if they ask me the question, what is God, I got to admit, I, it's going to take a minute. I'm going to have to back up and go, uh, e, uh, e, big, is uh, old, help. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, no delay. This is their answer. What is God? And the respondents are, are to memorize and say this. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, in glory, in blessedness. They mean happiness, by the way, by blessedness. Is a spirit in himself, infinite in being, in glory, which means beauty, in happiness, in perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Woo! Give me some of that theology, Lord. Dallas Willard says this about God's joy. While I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man named Matthew took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I had thought. But when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees all this all the time. He sees it. He experiences it. He knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like and unlike it 
in this and in billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through God's being. It's perhaps strange to say, but suddenly I was extremely happy for God. And I thought that I had some sense of what an infinitely joyous consciousness he is and what it might have meant for him to stand back and look at his creation and find it very good. We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and we never get tired of looking at their brilliant iridescence and marvelous forms and movements. But God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. I can hardly take in these beautiful little creatures one at a time. We are enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime and we may have very few of them. But he is simply one great, inexhaustible and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. This is what we must think of when we hear theologians and philosophers speak of God as being a perfect being. This is his life. So the Hubble telescope. Okay, I'll just pause for a sec. I've often thought, I wonder what it's like to be an ant. Or I wonder what it's like to be that, that uh, hummingbird. Or I wonder what it's like to be that dragonfly. I sat there watching a dragonfly the other day, and he perched right in front of me, holding completely still. He disappeared for about one and a half seconds. He came back, same spot. But now he was chewing on an ant that he had caught midair, flying ant. Right back to his little spot. And I watched as he consumed that ant, rear facing in. What's it like to be a dragonfly? God knows. God knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to fly in them. He experiences this universe he's made. He enjoys this universe he's made. From the macro to the micro level, what does it look and feel like to be up close? In the, in, in the actual subatomic, like in, in the water, in the subatomic level, what does that feel like? What does it look like when you were being formed in your mother's womb and when sperm and egg came together and formed a zygote and the DNA split in just the ways to combine to make the new DNA of the one new... God was there. He knew intimately and every little tiny detail was full life size to him because size, I doubt it. Same with magnificent large things. There's no place we'll go. There's no place we can even see or perceive. We just retired the Hubble and now we have a new one. But when the Hubble was new, this is one of the things a scientist said that we saw. Towering clouds of gases, trillions, I don't have a grid for trillions, trillions of miles high, backlit by nuclear fires in newly forming stars, galaxies cartwheeling into collision and sending explosive shockwaves boiling through millions of light years of time and space. And God was there watching it before we ever could see it with our little telescope. And he was enjoying it, you know. It's like when we find the stuff under the sea, which is relatively new for us, worlds we didn't know about for millions of years before humans knew God enjoyed it. One theologian I like, he said, uh, <laughs> uh, certain, certain of the dinosaurs ruled the planet for 66 million years or something like that. What were they doing during all that time? Well, mostly eating grass. 
And what was God doing, do, doing during all that time? I suppose watching them eat grass. And his friend later said, that was the deepest thing you ever said. <laughs> watching them eat grass. I'm just saying, God enjoys and knows intimately every square inch of his created universe. He knows it inside and out, and it's not absent from him because he's not one of the creatures in it moving around from here to here. He's the circle, and the universe is the dot. That is the entire teaching on God's godness. And we could do more. We could talk about Trinity. We could talk about his imminence. We could talk about his closeness. We could talk about the incarnation and his compassion. And we could talk about the Old Testament and his suffering. Because he doesn't just suffer in the New Testament. He suffers in the Old Testament. You read the prophets and you know a God who knows heartbreak and loss and betrayal and unrequited love. He knows what it feels like. So, so the vision that Adam Clark that I presented is like this God who's like bulletproof. And then the Bible presents us as, oh yeah, that's in his godness. But what about how he's chosen to make himself vulnerable to his children? Because right. he's not the God of the philosophers. He's not chosen to stay unhurtable. He's chosen to allow us to make him cry and bleed. Not because his purposes will ultimately be thwarted, but because his purpose is ultimately much more about relationship than about getting his way through a force of power. But we need to know who we're praying to when we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And surely Jesus, who had seen the Father in all eternity, understood. You know, so I'm slightly going to sneak in how things seem versus how things are. Elisha sees how things are because he can see that other realm by faith, not with, not with a, a revelation, but with a knowledge. Oh my word, the surrounding army, says Gehazi. And Elisha says, oh, Lord, will you open his eyes? And instantly Gehazi can see how things really are. What does that mean? He can see the overlay of the fact. Now he, now he can see in the spirit, like Isaiah seeing the Lord, or David, I saw the Lord always at my right hand, therefore I will not be shaken. And he's like, there's more with us than against us. And I don't think that was an isolated incident. I think it was an ongoing and permanent revelation for the saints. There's always more with us than against us. 